0: And good morning to you all. We have got an interesting text in front of us this morning. Uh, I, I, one of the things I hope that you're seeing as we continue to follow the life of the Peter, uh, life of Peter, is that one of one of the things we've noticed is that his journey in following Jesus has taken a, a dark turn. Uh, a, lo- a lot has been experienced really, since his mountaintop experience with Jesus at the Transfiguration. That was a moment when he, he saw, bore witness with his own eyes, with clarity, the glory and the power that comes with Jesus Christ. And since they've descended from that mountain, they've really entered into a dark valley together. And we got a sense for that last week as uh, disciples of Jesus, part of the crowd, Left in large numbers, abandoned Jesus because of some of his hard teaching. And yet Peter and the disciples remained with Jesus and clung to him. And so really what I think the scenario is that Peter faces as as it unfolds before him is that Peter's coming to realize that a life lived with Jesus is a life lived in great tension with the world around him. And that is a challenge that Peter is going to face really for the rest of his life. And it's a challenge that we face too, as those seeking to follow Jesus. And in this morning's text, I think we get an example of what that can look like. And it's followed by some teaching from Jesus about how we're to understand it. So let's look together. This is the The story of the temple tax, Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons of the king are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that as we uh, consider these words before us this morning, that you would give us the joy of being able to see you. Uh, Help us to see you, to understand ourselves as yours, and that you might give us guidance as to what our lives, this side of the new heavens and the new earth might look like. And even as we live in tension with the world around us, I pray that you would restore, renew, strengthen our relationship with you, that you would be the one that holds us. And help me as your servant before your people to speak words of truth, to speak words of comfort, conviction, and words of love to your people. And help me to honor you as I stand before them now. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you might have heard about this, but one of our more contemporary heroes of the faith uh, died this past week. His name was Ann Uh It's a strong Dutch name. He died at the ripe old age of 94, and some of, some, he was known, as, uh, some people called him Brother Andrew. Uh, other people knew him as God's smuggler, because one of the things he was known for doing was smuggling Bibles, Into countries that were hostile to the practice of the Christian faith. It started for him about 10 years after World War II ended. He began venturing past the Iron Curtain into Eastern Europe and even got all the way into Moscow, smuggling Bibles into very dangerous places. And even after his uh, face became familiar, like well-known, <laughs> and, and this famous Volkswagen Beetle that he drove all over the place uh, became familiar. He, he continued to do this and somehow could, uh, could slip past checkpoints. And there are amazing stories of his life uh, while he was moving God's Word to strengthen churches in place where it was dangerous and, and, uh, and very hard to to talk about or even practice the Christian faith. He was, he was encouraging churches. In the 1960s, he was seen in China. And in the 1970s, he was seen in the Middle East doing the same thing. All dangerous places for Christians. All, uh, all instances when he also had to break the law in order to do what he felt the Lord was calling him to do. And the story of Christianity is littered with stories like this one. Uh, at times when authorities who were hostile to the practice of the Christian faith took a threatening interest in, uh, in our practice and even the discussion of our faith and how they were faithful Christians every time that stood up and looked to serve God faithfully even when it meant breaking certain laws to do that. And, uh, and you know, we applaud these people. And I join you. We admire their courage and the strength of their resolve. And, uh, and, and we pray for these people. There are missionaries right now all over the world serving the Lord in dangerous places. And they need our support and our love. But there's a tension behind all of this, isn't there? Somewhat, we feel it deep in our hearts. There's, the tension is found uh, because there's really strong teaching in the New Testament to honor our authorities. I mean Paul writes some very strong words about that in Romans 13. And those are especially strong when you consider those first century Christians in Rome and what their lives must have looked like when 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 Paul writes these words calling him to honor honor authorities. James picks up words about that. He he teaches uh, on this thread and even Peter himself in 1st and 2nd Peter has has thoughts given to Christians about what it looks like to honor our authorities. So, so I think all of this, when we put it together, the things that we celebrate and, uh, and the things that we're called to lead to just a tension, one of the tensions that Christians feel uh, in the, the lives that we live on this side of the new uh, heavens and the new earth is this one. It's how are we to think, how are we to think about our responsibilities and those earthly authorities who stand against what we believe. What does faithfulness to God look like when we think about our earthly authorities? And there's a lot of tension behind that question, and we feel this this tension in a lot of ways. We feel it whenever we read articles about Supreme Court decisions, do we not? That we may or may not agree with. Uh, We feel this tension when we vote. We feel this tension when when we look at major issues in our lives and in our cities, when we think about uh, issues of race or gender or injustice, we, we bring these, th- these tensions to life and we, we feel it when we correspond with other Christians who disagree with us on these important issues. Because at the heart of all of these issues are really questions of how do we belong amongst the people who are governed with priorities other than our own. And I think that's a difficult tension that we all live with that we, and we all feel it. And I think there's a similar tension that Peter also feels in this story. As two people from the temple come to him asking if Jesus pays the temple tax. Because he's being approached by people who represent a group that has been in conflict with some of t- Jesus' teachings. There, there, there is no secret here that Jesus has challenged the temple establishment in profound ways and in public ways and possibly in generational ways, in ways they haven't ever heard or seen of in their entire life. And it's also no secret that there is a measure of hostility being directed from the religious establishment to Jesus himself. And we've, we've even seen the seeds of this hostility, and we know That these seeds will bloom into outright and public hostility that will lead to Jesus' death. And so really, how does Jesus address the question of earthly authority amidst an environment of hostility? That's the question I want to get at. I think it's a very practical question that we all feel deeply, uh, even now. And so just as a disqualifier, I can't even begin to answer all the questions that was like specific questions of how these things play out in our day-to-day lives. But what I think Jesus does is he gives us a couple of principles for how we're to understand ourselves in relationship to him and how we're to understand ourselves in relationship to the earthly authorities that we have. And so here they are, two, two principles. This is the way I'm going to work through it. First, he talks about the freedom of our identity and then he talks about the obligations of love. Okay, the freedom of our identity and the obligations of love. First, the freedom of our identity. I think it's really funny that the only um, <laughs> the only gospel writer who records this story is Matthew, who's an ex-tax collector. Um, but <laughs> but really, it's it's uh, it, it, uh, it's a question that's brought to Jesus through Peter about a certain tax. First, what is this tax? Well, these, um, these tax men are not the same tax kind of tax collector that Matthew was. Matthew was an employee of the Roman government, okay? He, he was known for extorting other Jews for their taxes on behalf. That's not what's going on here. What, what we have here is actually a temple tax. Um, they represented a, the collection of a Jewish tax, okay? So every Jewish male who was over 20 years old paid this tax, Uh, It amounted to a half a shekel or two drachmas, if you're interested in currency exchange, okay, to uh, a half a shekel represented about two days worth of a laborer's wage. So you can get a sense for about how much that was. And I think it was an annual tax that was paid to the temple. Uh, So it lacked the sanction of Roman law, but it was just generally culturally understood that every Jew paid it. Uh, and that's why the question that's brought to Peter is phrased in a certain way. It's phrased uh, almost expecting the affirmative. Um, d- does your teacher not pay the tax? Kind of sounds like he does pay the tax, doesn't he? I mean, it's a very assumptive posture that's being brought before him because everybody paid it. Why? Because the thing that the tax supports would have been really critical in the life of Israel. Uh, it went to support the work of the temple itself. And it had its roots in Exodus 30, when God called the people to pay a tax that supported the work of the tabernacle in that time. And so over the course of centuries, this tax evolved from supporting the work of the tabernacle to now the work of the temple. But more importantly... Here's here's what it here uh here's what it reveals. It reveals your your heart disposition toward the work of the temple. It it would have revealed just how much a person values the work of the temple because that's what matters of money do. They reveal the state of our hearts. And for you and for me, often the question is never am I going to pay this tax? The question is, what, is our, what do our hearts look like when we do pay the taxes that we owe, right? I remember growing up, I was a teenager, and the city I grew up in started a, uh, 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 we called it a garbage tax, okay? Uh, I promise I'm not going to get graphic on this, but it was a garbage tax. And what they did was they, they required you uh, before your garbage could get collected, they required you to buy, I think they were like 80 cents or a dollar, these stickers to put on your garbage bag in order for them to be collected. It was just a t- they were trying to reduce waste and they were trying to increase recycling, I think was what they were doing. And so they just imposed a tax on every bag of garbage that was collected. And uh, And boy, I remember... How angry people got as soon as this, as soon as news of this new tax was coming out. Uh, people questioned the need for the tax. Haven't we already been paying taxes that pay for this already? People questioned the motivations of the tax. People questioned the methods of the tax, especially when you forgot your sticker and then you have this whole bag of garbage that you got to keep for another week, you know, before it can get collected again. I mean, people, I've never seen so much anger over something as, as simple as what looked to me as a teenager, just like a cheap sticker that you could throw on a bag of garbage. But what was, what was it revealing? It was revealing people's hearts. And it especially revealed our willingness to submit to someone else's authority, because that's what something as simple as taxes can do. And that's why Jesus begins to give Peter what I see as a, as a heart lesson. About who he is. If you look at verse 27, he says, Who do the kings of the earth tax? Their sons or others? This is not a trick question. It was, it was well known that the royal family was normally exempt from paying for taxes. In fact, the royal family was who was supported by the payment of, ta- of taxes. It would have been ridiculous to, to tax the king's sons because the money collected by the tax would have just cycled back to them. And so it just, it wasn't a general practice that, that would be done. And so that's why Peter says, well, of course not the king's sons. Others get taxed for that. And so then Jesus says something radical, and I I want you to feel the weight of this. Jesus says, so the sons of the king are free. And you, Peter, are nothing less than that. That's your core identity. Because you belong to the son of God through me. You have all the freedom that belongs to my name. My freedom is your freedom. That's your identity. And I think it's profound that at the same time, when Jesus speaks to Peter about his identity, he simultaneously introduces a higher authority. See, the temple represented a locus of power and authority in their world. And yet, in, Mas- in Matthew 12, Jesus said, Behold, even one who is greater than the temple is here. The most central piece of the temple that this tax supported was the sacrificial system. That's what most of these funds went to go, to go pay for It paid the salaries of the priests. It paid for the clothes that they had to wear when they were performing sacrifices for people. It paid for wood to burn. It paid for wine and oil and flour and knives and all of the equipment that went into that. Essentially, the temple tax was one of the ways that they paid for their own sins. And here, Jesus is hinting at a time when this temple tax will no longer be necessary there will come a time when Peter will no longer have to pay men to represent him before God. Why? Because Jesus will become his representation. And when Jesus went to the cross, that's exactly what happened. That Jesus became the last and final sacrifice for the sins of his people forever and for all time. And in that moment, the temple, the work of the temple, became obsolete. That's why you see, some of you remember this, that as soon as Jesus uh, died, that the temple curtain was ripped in two. Because that was where God communed with man. And then Jesus, the living temple, became the place where we meet God. And so who needs to pay a temple tax... If, if Jesus has already paid for everything, if Jesus has paid it all, then we no longer owe any taxes. This is what he means. That when you are the son of the king, you are free because Jesus, Jesus himself is talking about a time when he would have already paid for everything that we owe. There is literally nothing else as God's people, you need to hear this, there is nothing else that is owed for you to be right with God. Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. And listen, how many obligations, how much do we lose sense of our freedom? because we don't believe this? How many obligations do we assume in this life because we struggle to believe that this is really true? Uh, How often do we make payments through work or through words or through favors to win the affections of people? Or do we make sacrifices on the altar of achievement all because we really don't believe that we're sons and daughters of the king? Jesus is saying, our payment has been made. There is nothing left to win. And the more you believe that, the more you truly understand your freedom. And if we're truly free, then we're also freed from fear. Jesus is telling us that there is a connection between the strength of our identity as God's people and the strength of the freedom that we have as we consider the world around us. If you're truly freed from fear of God's judgment, then you're also freed from worrying that the world is spinning away from you. There's no decision that our authorities can make. There is no movement. There is no ideology or philosophy that can wrest control of the world away from God's plans. There is no authority, good or bad, over you right now that can strip away the freedom that you have in Christ. Your freedom is unassailable because your identity is unassailable. And so we don't have to be afraid. Our identity is in him. But it's not enough just to ask the question, what are we freed from? We also have to ask the question, what are we freed to? And the next question, as those who belongs, belong to Jesus is answered, as he tells Peter to just go ahead and pay the tax anyway. Uh, he, tells, he tells Peter and he tells you and me that we're now freed to love. He imposes obligations of love on us what's Jesus's concern as he tells Peter to go get a coin and pay the tax look at verse 27 he says however not to give any offense to them now that's really curious isn't it like since when name me a story where Jesus has ever been really worried about offending people in fact, the story that we looked at last week, it really looked to me like Jesus was outright looking to offend people. But if you study Jesus' ministry, you see that every time that he's looking to offend somebody, he's, he's bringing them face to face with the raw truth of the gospel. And the gospel is offensive. It, the only way the gospel has value in our own hearts is if. We understand how badly we need it it 's medicine for the sinner, and so the gospel is only good if we just if we really understand how bad we are, and the, the cross of Jesus is only helpful to us if we understand how helpless we are and if you don 't believe me, try forgiving somebody who hasn 't offered an apology yet that never goes well right it 's offensive the gospel is offensive it 's so offensive that Jesus calls it a scandalon, a scandal or a stumbling block. It can be hard to understand. And so one of the ways that he calls Peter to take up the obligations of love is is by not making the gospel any more offensive than it already is. By the way that we live our lives amongst the people around us, by the words that we choose to use, by the way we carry our core beliefs. One of, the ways that we, one of the ways that we keep the message of the gospel pure and good and offered to those who need it is, is that we protect our witness. And so we engage these obligations of love. Paul helps us out in 1 Corinthians 9. He says this. This is really helpful. He says, for though I am free from all, notice how he's keeping his freedom, I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. That I might win more of them. I have become all things for all people. That, that by all means I might be able to save some. His goal is no different than ours. What's his goal? He wants to win people to Jesus. He wants more people to know Jesus. And so he is willing to, to, to let some of his freedoms go. In order that he endures the obligations of love. All that people might meet Jesus. And Paul is so convinced of the freedom that he has in Jesus Christ, he's willing to compromise on everything else so that more will come to meet him. Let me let me put this another way. He's so convinced of his freedoms that he's willing to surrender his freedoms for the sake of love. You catch that? That's why I threw that quote from Martin Luther in at the beginning of the worship booklet. He says it's perfect. He says we're perfectly free and... We're perfectly, we're a perfectly dutiful servant. We're both things at the same time, he said. We're radically loved, and so we're free to radically, uh, we're free to love in radical ways. That's the obligation of love that we're called to. And the wonder of the story—I mean, the sheer wonder of it—is that at the same time that Jesus calls Peter. To the obligation of love, he also provided the means to give it. That he never calls us to a hard obligation without offering the means to provide it at the same time. And listen, paying a tax is just an object lesson here, isn't it? Uh, I, I mean, this is speaking to how how Peter understands, and how you and I understand how we belong uh, amongst people who might have different priorities than our own, and that's every day for us, right? And it also applies to how we're to understand the authorities in our lives that might govern with different priorities than ours. And I don't know about you, but I feel like that's, this is one of those hard tensions that we feel that can feel so tough that it's just even hard to talk about it. There's a lot of strong teaching. The Bible is very clear on this point, though. There's a lot of strong teaching in the New Testament that has its roots in both this story and in the story where Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay, go ahead, pay your taxes. That's a hard question because for the Christians because paying, pay, paying taxes to Rome means giving your money to something and you don't know how that money's going to be spent. It might be spent in ways you would not agree with. A, that was a very hard question. But what the the primary point that Paul issues uh, in Romans thirteen, he couldn't be more clear on this point. He says, Treat your earthly authorities as if they were they were appointed to their position by the very authority of God, because that's what they are. And so what that means for us is that wherever we can, we comply. Wherever we can. That's our obligation of love. And so we pray for our leaders. We look to support our leaders. We live out our faith uh, as citizens in the best way that we possibly can. But we also must remember our true identity as sons and daughters of the king. He is our supreme authority. And he has issued guarantees to his children of what the world's trajectory looks like. And there's nothing outside his providential love and care. And that means that we don't have to be afraid. When we watch our leaders walk down paths we don't agree with. We don't have to respond out of fear. And there's nothing that can happen. There's nothing that's powerful enough to pose any obstacle to God's desires for both you and for the world around you. And they're accountable to the king just as you and I are. And I think there's a direct correlation between understanding who our authorities are and who we are. Because the more we understand who we are in Christ, the easier it is to entrust the things that concern us the most to him. Our measure of security in Christ corresponds directly with how much we trust God to make good on his promises. And you know what helps me a lot when I think about these things? I like to think about the first century Christians in Rome that Paul was writing to. And what their lives must have looked like. I have to speak generally here, uh, but the the historical accounts largely agree. uh, That their life was very, very hard as Christians in that time. Uh, most of them were poor. Most of them were. And there was very little possibility for any kind of socioeconomic advance. Just by having the identity of Christian isolated you from many opportunities. And yet, through the centuries, Christians were known for living faithfully in an in, uh, in oppositional time. They were, no- they were known for feeding the poor and sharing bread with each other, and taking care of the needy. Uh, They were known for loving their neighbors. In fact, at least two plagues in the city where everyone who could was running for the hills, Christians were known for staying in the city and serving those who were sick at great risk to themselves. What were they doing? They they took great care to honor those... (laughs) They took great care to love those around them and complying wherever they could with their freedom, so that at the same time they could bear witness to the truth of Jesus wherever they could. Because what was the major exception for them? There were times where they were unable, where they, uh, they were called to recant their faith, even at, uh, at risk of their own death. And this they couldn't do, they would comply as much as they can- could until it took time for them to deny their very identity as sons and daughters of the king. And so some caved, but many did not. And so they complied wherever they could, so that they could one day bear witness to the truth of Jesus wherever they could. And I think those are the principles that serve us well in this difficult topic. You know, one of the things I want you to see is that I think we often think about the exercise of our freedoms and the obligations of love as mutually exclusive. Like the more we serve and love, the more we're constraining the freedoms that Jesus has given to us, or vice versa, the more that we indulge in our freedoms, the more we're actually withholding our love. But one of the things I want you to see is that in Jesus, those two ideas are married to each other. That we love because we're free. And we're free only because we've been radically loved. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, with what love have you given to us? With what love have you cared for us? And I pray that you would be with us, that you would hold us and lead us. As we go before your world, seeking to serve you and the people around us, give us such a great view of just what you've done for us. Animate our hearts with the truth of your love that we might love well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.